welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 11, our end-of-year retrospective, 2012 edition. With me this time is Senior Curator and Head Editor of our This Week in Video Game blogging feature, Chris Ligman. Hi, I'm a girl. Editor and Wrangler of the monthly blogs of the Roundtable feature, Alan Williamson. Hello, I'm the Irish one. And This Week in Video Game blogging contributor and Editor-in-Chief of Game Ranks, Ian Miles Chong. Hey, what's up? And I am your host, Eric Swain. The focus of the first half of the retrospective will be on the issues, cultures, and yes, controversies of the year. What? I didn't sign up for any controversy. There's a reason I called this the shit show. <laughs> oh. <laughs> if you've been paying attention, you'll have noticed that this year was not a happy year, and we were and if you were paying attention to the podcast, in our last retrospective we ended on a note of hopeful optimism for the year to come, and then it kicked us in the stomach repeatedly. We're going to leave most of the worst of it for the end, so if you have problems and if you can't listen to that sort of thing, the worst of it will all be grouped together at the end of this section. But for right now, let's start with an asshole dealing with another asshole. (laughs) (laughs) So who's who's speaking first? (laughs) In January, and I... This to Ian, I mentioned this to you, and you said, God, you hope not. Paul <laughs> Cristoforo and Penny Arcade. Yeah. That happened like in the second week after everyone was so hopeful and putting out <laughs> on Twitter. The second week of the year. Oh, God. Ian, please take it. Take okay, it. yeah, yeah, okay. So there's this guy. Let's get a backstory first. There is a attachment for you, your Xbox 360 controller. It's for disabled kids. So anyway, some guy, he was having customer support problems, so he called up the dude to make these controllers. I think it's called the Avenger controller. I might be wrong. But anyway, he, he sent out an email asking them for, you know, the controller because he had ordered it and they'd taken like a few months or something for it to arrive. And uh, after like four emails, he realized... The dude doing customer support was, like, really unhelpful. And, you know, they started getting into, like, an argument. So what he did was he he included Penny Arcade in email thread because the dude who, who worked customer support was, like, bragging that he knew the guys from Penny Arcade and so on and so forth. And so what happened was, you know, he this dude started making a complete ass of himself. He said, like, I website as on the Internet. That was one of his quotes. He was really self-important. And it turns out that the Penny Arcade people, they, they got an uh, interest in what was happening, and they sent him back an email, you know, asking, hey, what was up, you know, why, why are you acting like this? And this dude, Paul Cristoforo, who is who was acting as customer support, but he's actually the marketing, he um, he started mouthing back to them, saying that he's really important, and when he, because he didn't realize who they were, you know, he was talking about how he can go to PAX and that he doesn't need a ticket because he knows people there, he's important in Boston, all these weird, really weird, braggy things. And Penny Arcade was like, you know what, we're banning you from Penny Arcade. And then he realized, oh, you know, these are the Penny Arcade guys. Time to suck up. So he tries to suck up to them, and, you know, they're not having any of it because, you know, he's full of shit. And so they post a whole email thread on uh, the, the front page of uh, pennyarcade.com, and then everybody gets to read it, and it, it goes to hell from there because, you know, everybody's like, oh, who's this Paul Christopher guy? He's such a clown, you know, and they start writing stories about it. I wrote a story about it. I actually broke one of the, the big stories. Like, I, I got the first interview with him. So, yeah. So, you oh, know, he, yeah, he's... Yeah, 
But the worst of it was all the abuse that was heaped on him, the attacks yeah. on Twitter, people trying to get his personal information. It was a bit uh, much. Yeah. Like, I mean, I understand that the guy's a jerk, you know, he's a clown, but, you know, people were getting really, really personal and making it like a personal war, you know, they're having a personal war against him, and at some point he was like, you know, just leave me alone, you know, this is not, you know, not worth it. But Penny Arcade, they're also a bunch of assholes, so, you know, they just kept heaping it on, you know. To be fair, only one of them... Only one half of them, yeah. Because... And I believe the quote was, I'd rather burn everything I built down to the ground than give an inch to people like him. Yeah, he was like, okay, I get get where he's coming from. I get that he's a geek, he's a nerd, you know, he had a bad childhood, people used to pick on him. And he sees Paul Christopher as the embodiment of these bullies. But, you know, what's ironic here is that he was becoming the bully geeks and, and, and nerds or whatever, they're not the bullied anymore, you know, they're the bullies these days, and, you know, that was the start of the year, and that basically set the tone for a lot of other things that happened, uh, as we'll get to eventually afterwards. This so, year, yeah. better bullying? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it. Okay, now this was a fluff piece gone wrong. The so- the sex on the Sonic's bed sheets thing that appeared on Kotaku a little late for Valentine's Day. I'm kind of surprised it's like, I didn't hear about this. You know, Sonic and sex. That sounds like a match made in heaven for me. But I, you know, I, I it was honestly just a, a not so well thought out post that because I guess nothing else happened that week went viral <laughs> on Twitter. This is my big beef with especially the Twitter versus sort of like gaming community. It's just like if there is no controversy, we'll invent one with. But by the time the week is out, yeah. And I do want to be fair that the, I didn't actually start writing these as they happened. So the first half of this is mostly Rowan Kaiser's <laughs> assessment of all the controversies Damn that it, happened Rowan. during the year. I, I, picked, I only picked it up and started doing it in about May. Yeah. But yeah, honestly, it's so insignificant that it's such a silly thing that I'm willing to just leave it as that that's all we talk about it. Um, can I can I make an announcement for anybody listening? Yeah. Make sure you Google Sonic Sex Kotaku, not Sonic Sex, because the latter won't get you what you want. <laughs> Did you just test that out? Yeah. So you get YouTube Sonic Sex, number two, Rise of Robotnik, cool Sonic Sex game. Then you get Sonic Project XXX. There's no way I'm clicking on that. Um, Sonic, Sonic the Sex Hog. I, I, I'll, I'll take your word for it. We're moving on. Oh, no, there's one here. It's chili sex. That's just disturbing. <laughs> well, I actually know why. Why it's called that? It's because in one of the, <laughs> there, there are two Sonic shows, and in the bad one, he had an affinity for chili dogs. I don't know why. What kind of an affinity? Uh, <laughs> I <do> like. <laughs> it's kind of like Popeye and spinach, except way less healthy. Or Bugs Bunny and carrots. Popeye doesn't wrong, you know. I mean, that's what's wrong. Spinach and his genitals, you know. That is what's wrong with today's cartoons. You know, like back in the day, it's all about healthy. You know, eating healthy spinach. You know, kids hate spinach, but it's good for you. And Popeye helped to promote, you know, the healthiness of eating green food. Whereas now, it's like Sonic the Hedgehog, he loves chili dogs, you know, and, and hey, that's why that's, we have... But the let's show be a bit fair. I mean, the Cookie Monster has cut down on cookies, so I'm sure there's yeah. some sort of health awareness going on here. Gosh, <laughs> I hope so. Also, it off, to, be fa- 
and I'm, to be fair on the issue, Popeye only ate spinach so he could beat other people up. <laughs> this went into like, I would love to eat spinach and beat people up. I'm just saying. Wow, this went into a really weird direction really fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're going to skip to March. Why would Bill you skip it to March? There's so much here. There's... Yes, yeah, but the, no, those are asterisks for the end of the show, so I only. Have oh, to okay, okay, okay. All right. That's what the asterisks mean. Mm. Trigger warning for the end of the show. Okay, okay. Phil Fish on the death of Japanese creativity. Also, another uh, one that I think that's blew out of proportion. Oh yeah, I mean, I I actually agree with him. Here's the thing, I actually oh. agree with his his view. You know, like I agree with it to a certain part, but on the other hand, Japanese put out some pretty. Damn good games. The and, like, the worst. The and the and the worst games they put out were trying to be more like the West. Mm-hmm. But well, here's the thing. I mean, like the, the indies do, like Suda Fifty One does. The um, uh, I, I can't remember the other guy's name. He made the premonition. Oh yeah, Swery. Yeah, Swery. Yeah, Swery Sixty Five. Like, I mean, these guys are basically the indie people in, in Japan because they don't get any support from Nintendo. They don't get any support from anyone. They're doing it themselves. Kita Takahashi. Not a genius, you know. He is a brilliant man, and his games are like awesome. But you know, he's indie. Whereas, like, I think the mainstream Japanese video game development community is all the same. You know, they either make um, uh, dating sims or they make stuff like Atelier Iris or whatever. You know, all those. Basically, you know, it's like an RPG where you know you have static dialogue. You don't really customize your characters. You maybe dress them up or something, and then you all fight in an arena. You know, that's like the tale style games, like. You can name off maybe uh, several dozen of those released in the past few years. You know, I mean that's. But then, on the other hand, you have people. You have people like Platinum Games, mm-hmm. who are exceedingly putting out some of the best and at sure. least most visually interesting action titles. Yeah. What yeah. about Nintendo? Nintendo. And yet, people seem to forget Nintendo. Yeah, that is the Japanese gaming industry. Yeah, but they they, we, they just like released the same game. They, they don't even yeah. bother. Like, hey, it's New Super Mario Brothers. HD, yeah, it's different. Yeah, it's HD now. Hey, buy it. Go on, buy it, please. Although, to be fair, on the creativity side, they did think that the Wii U was going to be a good idea, which mm-hmm. is yet to be seen, but still, you got to give them points for trying. Points for it's, trying. So, but yeah, I can I get where he was coming from, but I think it was the more controversial. It's getting stale. It's getting stale, and it's not. Uh, it's I mean, it's a view that that, uh, that actually a few Japanese developers agree with. I forget who it was. Oh, oh, oh! It was the guy who made it was the Bayonetta. Like he said that he said that yeah, the Japanese but, industry is like you know it's really stale at this point. Like everybody's just making the same old stuff, and they're trying so hard to keep their Japanese fan base and all these Japanese gamers are actually playing Call of Duty now. You know, I mean, that's how bad it's gotten. Like, you know, Call of Duty is actually number one. So, you know, really? it's, it's a lot. I thought, I, didn't think, I thought FPSs didn't sell as well. No, they actually do. Like, I actually, when I play my Call of Duty Black Ops with anyone, it's all Japanese players. All of them are Japanese. So, that's really I, I didn't depressing. know that there is a dedicated section. I didn't think it was that big. Oh, it's getting big. You know, I mean, aside from the fighting gaming community... The Japanese games are really the mainstream is really just blah. Blah is a terrible term to use because it means I'm unable to articulate myself. <laughs> but that's basically blah, what blah. it is. It, blah, uh, blah. No. Yeah. Blops. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering if we shouldn't save this for the section where we talk about games. What is it? The Mass Effect Three ending. Um, or at least the blow up. My favorite. Over. We should talk about it. It's a big deal. Or the most specifically, the petition to the Better Business Bureau. 
<laughs> and, the, and no, the Better Business Bureau got involved. The petition was for uh, yeah. the U.S. Department of Commerce <laughs> to get Bioware. I I don't know cited citation citation or something. <laughs> I don't know what we're asking for. <laughs> oh God! Especially since it's a Canadian company. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. I just feel proud to be European. Every time I hear about these things, with somebody in a, a class action suit or a better business bureau, we just assume all businesses are crap and there is no bureau to enforce the, any kind of goodness. Oh, no, you know? we can't enforce anything. The Better Business Bureau is basically just a, a watchdog telling you who's doing good and who's doing yeah, bad. Yeah, they don't actually do anything. It's, a, it's, just, it's yeah. just a group of people who got together and look at things, whether companies are behaving themselves, and then tell you what they think. It's not a government agency. Yeah, Alan, we don't believe in regulating something like capitalism in, on this oh, side yeah, of the pond, true, okay? True. The Department of Commerce is a government agency, but I'm not actually sure what they do. <laughs> Which pretty much sums it up right there. Oh, and one thing to add on this, it was BioWare or EA was named the worst corporation. <laughs> yeah, EA. EA. It was over this. It was over this, yeah, the... Uh, it was over this, but it was also over their DRM practices, as far as I'm Sure, aware. yeah. Yeah, I would just like to mention it beat out Halliburton, <laughs> Exxon, Goldman Sachs, AIG, Amazon. Okay, it's one, one of the better companies. It beat out BP. Yeah, Exxon. BP, yeah, it beat out BP and it beat out Halliburton. That's so But yeah, and no, in the finals, it beat out Golden, Goldman Sachs yeah, in the finals. Even though I know, was, like, I saw that, and I was like, I can't take this poll seriously. How do you... Do, and EA doesn't even have the worst DRM practices mm-hmm. in the gaming industry. Mm-hmm. Activision would have the worst DRM practices, I would say. I thought it was Ubisoft. No, Ubisoft, Ubisoft. Ubisoft undid uh, a lot of their stuff, like their PC. Yeah, but until that, yeah. they oh, had that at, always on Draconian oh, yeah, yeah, DRM. Yeah, right. It was really annoying a lot of people. I'm glad they took it off, because, you know, it's yeah. not in Far Cry 3, it's not in Assassin's Creed 3, so... Yeah, they got rid of it at the end of the summer when they realized it wasn't working. Yep. They actually apologized for it, too, which is kind of big of them, I guess. Well, it was kind also, of like a non-apology. It was a hide apology <laughs> But back on Mass Effect 3's ending. Yeah. I loved it! Still haven't played the extension cut. I asked my friend who played through the entire trilogy twice, and he said, you know what? This is pretty much how it, the only way it could end. Yeah. He was perfectly satisfied, and he he didn't even understand why people were angry at it. Same. To be fair, I haven't, it my, I haven't played it myself, so I'm deferring to him on that. Uh huh. Like I played it. I, I I you know I played the whole game. I don't know twice. Like all of them twice. No, I I, I didn't understand what people are mad about. I was like, okay, you know, this is like any science fiction ending. It provides closure. Uh, that's it. Well, I mean, what more do you want? You can't expect Shepard to live. Come on. Do you think that's why people were annoyed, though? Do you think they were actually complaining so. because Shepard died? Because that, I yeah. mean, that's ridiculous. Spoilers. The reason I felt a bit affronted was because, A, all you really chose at the end was the color of explosions as a galaxy collapsed on itself. Oh, spoiler warning. Sorry. Uh, also, there is kind of an issue where people expect you to impose your will on the entire galaxy, but as soon as the galaxy tries to impose its will on your character, oh, no, the developers have gone too far. Yeah, yeah, it's, it goes back to the... Well, it goes back to where? I didn't even introduce it. Oh, it harkens to an issue of colonizing a game. Like, the, the colonizer doesn't want to be colonized. They don't like having their agency taken away. It's like, this is not how it's supposed to happen. You know, like, whenever you watch a movie, and there's a villain, and he's like a conqueror, a dictator who's conquering everything, and when he dies, it's like, this is not how it's supposed to happen. You know, like, he can't believe it. He can't believe what's happening, and... 
Okay, at the end of Borderlands 2, I know this is kind of a spoiler, but, you know, when Handsome Jack dies, he's like, I'm the hero, I'm not supposed to die, you're not supposed to kill me, you're the bad guy. Right there, that was like a reference to this. It was, it was a reference oh. to this mentality that when you are playing the hero, you don't want to die. And when you die, it's like, oh shit, this is all wrong, it's not supposed to happen. And that's why people didn't like the ending for Mass Effect 3, because they had that agency taken away from them. Turns out, they're not really the hero, they're just playing a part, like life. Well, they are the hero, but the yeah. hero doesn't always live. And he shouldn't, and he shouldn't. People who get mad about this, they're, uh, I guess, immature. I thought it was really telling that this is probably the same sort of reaction that other games in the past probably would have provoked out of people. I'm thinking especially the ending to the original Final Fantasy VII, where you had a really similar thing where it's just, well, everyone's gone, probably dead. The only one left is the cat person, and we don't even know where his kids came from. Society is pretty much funked. And the only reason that I think that Final Fantasy VII got a pass, and I remember even back then in the 90s, you know, people were, you know, writing letters to the editor and all that stuff saying, oh, this is terrible. How could they get away with an ending like this? But Squaresoft, because they were still Squaresoft then, didn't go and then write a patch for the game to give more closure. They just just brought in a PSP game and a movie instead. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's pretty much it. The compilation stuff has completely ruined Final Fantasy VII for me, but that's just me being a fangirl about it. Yeah, but the idea now, and I think Peter Skerritt was actually, like, saying something about this earlier today. You know, he was quoting someone, and I didn't have the time to read the actual article that he was referencing, but it's just like, the internet has killed gaming. And even as much as I think that that's, that's just hyperbole, I don't think you could really take that to any sort of extreme. But on the other hand, it's just like we are in kind of like a situation now where when gamers are displeased with something, not only can they speak up in a very vocal way, but they can also get the developers to listen to them. And I think Mass Effect getting its ending patched sets a really problematic precedent. Yeah. Isn't this like, the reason why the two doctors left Bioware? I thought they just wanted to move on. Yeah, they wanted to move on. They're doing each of them is doing other things. One of them is working with like a tech company or something. And the other one started his own brewery. Yeah. That doesn't say I wanted to try something else. I don't know what does. Yeah. They, you know, it's not because they were upset or anything. If they were upset they'd probably go make a new game company. Also, no, I'm not yeah. sure how much actual day to day influence on the game or work they ha- they actually have. I think yeah. they're they were like managers at that point. They were VPs of uh, EA, so it was managing more than just Bioware. They had to manage the, the old Republic team. They also had to manage whoever's making uh, Command and Conquer Generals 2 because it's under the Bioware banner. And so that's becoming less and less meaningful as time yeah. goes on. Managing the, the worst company in America? <laughs> <laughs> What, Part of it. what is interesting about, I mean, I hope to, uh, just a short diversion is that uh, they actually removed the Bioware name from the Mythic company. They're supposed to work in Ultima Online, uh, Warhammer Online. It had a Bioware name on it for a while, but now they took it off. It's just Mythic again. That makes sense. I, I think it's a, it's a good decision because they don't want to water it down too much. So they're giving Bioware back. It's uh, making it the premier company again. So it's not just anything. Well, developer prominence, you know, it ebbs and it flows. I mean, that's just an industry for you. I don't really look at the whole Mass Effect 3 thing and say, oh, it's the death of Bioware. But I do look at it as it's definitely kind of a transition into a very problematic trend. Developers ceding too much control to consumers. Yeah, you, you, having shared authorship to me, I don't, I don't really like that idea. You know, I mean, like, I like it with Minecraft because Minecraft is like a sandboxy game, 
and he, he they actually um, talked to the modders no. and they hired the modders and then they put their stuff in there. But but he also says no to some. He does say no to some stuff, which is interesting. Notch is another interesting case because he's kind of hands off with Minecraft at this point. He's on to other things. So I mean, at some point, it's just like he kind of let his own project go. Give it mean, to dinner bone. Yeah. Which I, th- I mean, which is, I think, a, a pretty blank thing to do, really. I mean, yeah. you don't see an awful lot of developers that are just willing to let their game... Mainstream developers, I mean, you see this a bit more with indie developers, and Notch, I guess, is just an indie who made big, you could say. Yeah. But you don't see an awful lot of... And, and I think it's noble when a developer says, we're going to just, like, let this happen to the wild, you can do what you want with it. And I thought that that was, like, really profound this year with all the Kickstarter successes that came out and saying, hey, we want to involve you in this process, I think that's cool. What isn't cool is when, you know, consumers pay for something, and they're like, this does not meet my expectations on a story level. If it was if it was a matter of gameplay, if they shipped a broken product, okay. But this wasn't a broken product. This was an artistic decision that they made, and they were asked to patch it. There's yeah. also another level to that. They were complaining about it, and they were trying to get their like licenses revoked, or that they had to pay like damages and suit. No, you bought a shitty game. If you did, if you think it's a shitty game, then you bought a shitty game. You that is a not disappointing like, a game. Suable, yeah, that's not a suable offense. No, it's it's like it's like if you buy a book and then you don't like the ending, and you mail the author, and you're like, I'm gonna sue your pants off unless you change the ending. <laughs> I've never heard of that ever happen. Like that that has never happened. It probably before. did, but no one gives it credence. Right and now. It's got credence. Yeah. What if it happens in movies and people are like, oh, I don't like how The Hobbit ends. Go make it again. (laughs) I don't really think that that's an appropriate analogy at all because movies are actually frequently edited in response to audience feedback. They just do that that before they're in wide release, yeah. But, I mean, Mm. the idea that a game can't be changed because of audience reception, that isn't so much my issue. My issue is that it's already in wide release, and, yeah, it's just like, this is a tool that we need to change now, not a product with an ending that I didn't agree with. Which is why the Kickstarter thing is so great, is because they're, like, doing it at the concept level. They're doing it like, okay, what features, is this feature better than this feature? It's almost like beta testing at the very earliest level. Actually, I didn't see an awful lot of Kickstarter stuff on this list, but... You know, with Project Eternity, it's just like, that was like the first time I was actually seriously wowed with a Kickstarter project from a pretty high-profile developer, where it's just like, we are making this entire process transparent from the word go. And I think... Double Fine did it say. Double Fine did the same, yeah. I mean, I didn't invest in that one, so I didn't look in it as heavily. But I think that that's a way to go now, that, you know, if you really want to be a sort of audience-pleasing kind of developer... You need to be completely transparent. You need to abandon the traditional publisher model and go directly to consumers. Or even like one game I just finished, Primordia, is like they have a they have like a full commentary in there. You just click a button and it'll comment on the scene that's going on right then. I'm thinking more games are probably going to need that to just drop the veil of mystery behind behind them. Yeah, like Half-Life Two did other, that, and so did Portal. Yep. Yeah, all games did that. All of them, even Left 4 Dead. See, I don't know if I like this idea of finding out everything about a game before it comes out. It kind of takes a bit of the mystery and the magic out of it, you know? 
that's why I know I don't I, I understand not beforehand, but definitely but like with the Double Fine documentary, you can hold that off until after you played it, you can watch the whole thing and it's Oh yeah. Pretty yeah. Well, I don't mean I don't mean like I don't mean like taking out director's commentary. What I mean is like it's a classic I guess it's a kinda of Apple mentality, I'm showing my Appleness but sitting in front of a MacBook here. But it's like mm-hmm. if you ask people what would you want on a laptop to come up with, you know, about ten million different connectors and all kinds of different attachments and silly crazy things. What Apple oh, tend to do is just come at one thing that suits most people. So part of the problem with the Kickstarter thing is whenever you say to Joe Gamer, what do you want in this? He'll go, oh, you need this, this, and this. You need 10,000 weapons and a million different characters, yada. And so whenever you take that whenever you take that creative design process out of the developer's hands and into the players a bit, they don't necessarily know if that's the best thing. Yeah, it's feature creep. It's a bad idea. Yeah. You have to have a, a lead designer and, you know, he doesn't manage everything. It's like, okay, this is not going to work because it's going to take too much time or it's going to detract from all our other cool stuff. Yes, this idea is really cool, but it will lessen the cool factor of everything else. I mean, I think the, the only thing worse, for example, than a Disney-designed Star Wars Episode Seven would be a fan-designed Star Wars Episode Seven. <laughs> See, you're laughing, because you can, you, can, you can appreciate the horror of that. Well, A, that already exists, yeah. and it isn't that bad. It does? B, yeah. Well, it's more like a side story rather than the galaxy spawning epic. With, the, with regards to the Disney thing, I, I actually don't have much of a problem with it. Well, I, do, I. I, don't, I don't really care. It's just an example. I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't yeah. taint the, the original... Oh, I violated the rule. Wait, what? What rule? We were giving you some silence. Let's just move on, because we're going to be on this thing for like forever. Yeah. New Vegas Metacritic scores affect bonuses. Oh, yeah, that was horrible. They, there's a raw deal for Obsidian. And yeah, it's Obsidian's fault for agreeing to this shit. But yeah, because they got an 84 or 83 instead of 85, they lost their bonuses. It was, like, it was 84 point something. Yeah. It's all because of one review, you know, that just dropped it. And, and, okay, there are several problems here. One, that is a kind of an awful, awful deal for anyone to force upon them. And two, people need to stop giving Metacritic so much credence. It does not equate to success of a game. You know, success of a game could be equated to how many copies it sells. I was I wondering that why isn't the bonus based on number of copies sold? Yeah. You think that because that's a direct metric. Yeah. We earned this amount of money. Now we can pass on the money to you. Yeah, it's fair. Well, yeah, which yeah, it's going to hurt like critical darlings that don't sell well. Sure. Then again, the money isn't there to bonus out. Right. It makes sense, right? I mean, to just set it on a metric that you can actually predict and and, and not something that's like, oh yeah, this game is subjectively an 84 instead of an 85, so therefore we're not giving you any bonuses. Really? How the hell does that work? And and it's because of that, the um, the company had to fire like a whole bunch of people, people who were working on uh, South Park at the time, I think, they got laid off, and there was another game that... You think this is why, one reason they went to... Right. I was wondering that myself, like if this was actually a direct antecedent to that. I, I know what another direct cause was. It was the fact they tried to go to a publisher, and they said... Go to Kickstarter, and then and if you do it, we'll publish huh. it. But right. Why not just cut you out of this deal, then? That was, like, the direct reason they went to Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Someone Fergus Urquhart, the CEO of Obsidian, he actually posted that on a Kickstarter. He said that we approached some publishers, and they were like, why don't you go to Kickstarter, and then we'll publish you? And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. Why don't we just cut you out of the deal, then? Yeah. Exactly. It's seriously like one of those things you see in a movie where they have to compress like a conversation down to get all the ideas in mm-hmm. that usually take months. Yep. And here it's like it's like literally within two quips. Yep. Wow. 
And the thing is, it, New Vegas, the fact that this happened in New Vegas is its own interesting mark, because when that game was released, when all the reviews would come out, it was broken. Yeah. It was, like, disastrously broken. Bugs. Typical Obsidian... Not, not really Obsidian. It's more like a, a problem with Bethesda games in general. Like, QA is not up to bar. I would love to, like, interview, like, the head of QA. I actually know him. I used to play Warhammer Online with the guy. There you go. There's a, there's a free feature idea. <laughs> I don't think he wants to uh, be quoted on record. Clearly <laughs> yeah, not, Bezzy. He's got plenty of time in his hands. What's his problem? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing is, it's like, I wonder, it's just, do they cut things that down to the wire that QA doesn't have an effect? Or is like, are they understaffed? Because those games Q- are Q- legitimate. QA is fine. Q- QA is not the problem. It's, it's because of the release dates. You know, they cut everything down to the wire. They don't really have time to fix any of it. So, like, QA knows all the bugs that people experience. So that, you know, you have monsters disappearing through the ground. They know about that. They reported it probably dozens of times. It's just... Hard to fix. Monsters falling through ga- grounds or things disappearing and popping back. Those are fun bugs. Those are like the entertaining stories you tell around the water cooler. Uh-huh. It's when the game actively destroys your save. Oh, yeah. That's a, that was a street problem. problem. It's a, it still is. It's, it's a problem with the engine that Obsidian cannot do anything about. It's a Game Briar problem. It exists with Skyrim, and that's the reason why the, the DLCs are not available. Available for the PS3 version of Skyrim. Well, Sky, Skyrim's a new engine. Skyrim's a, a new engine. You can't see yeah. anything in the inverted commas here, but it's gonna it's gonna new. And it's not it's not the same as Oblivion. It just it just looks the same. It has the same bugs, but it's but it's new. It's different. Mm-hmm. And New Vegas itself isn't technically the same engine because they had so many overlays. It's the graphics are new. The, the graphics in the map editor are new, but the uh, the memory handling is all the same. The safe handling is all the same, and that's the reason why. The save files get really huge, you know, 10 gigabytes sort of thing. Jesus. Yeah, very bad. That's all right. Xbox went to the memory because of that. All right. Does anyone actually remember that this game happened this year? Draw something. Uh, no. It seemed like last year, you know? It seemed like a game I played last year. Yeah, yeah it, you could have, actually. But, uh, yeah, the draw something CEO basically being a jerk because one of uh, his employees decided not to go to Zynga. Yep and decided to go somewhere else, and then when he was asked about it, he told them why, and then the CEO is just insulting him. Yeah, it's like you're a loser, you know, you're, you're the reason you don't want people that you are at our company. You're a naysayer, you don't like negative Nancy. And then, like, and then like a week later, draw something, goes off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the timing on that is just too perfect. Draw something <laughs> is Zynga's biggest mistake. They sank... How much did they sink into it? Was it like a billion dollars or something? Some I want to say... That was Instagram oh, or Facebook. Instagram. I want to say it was the same number. It was something really wanna... absurdly high. You know, it was something absurdly high, and they thought that, oh, this would be a great investment. Nobody's playing Draw Something anymore, and Zynga is, like, shutting down all of its studios. I, I know people lost their jobs at, at Zynga because of this shit. How did they not see it coming, though? I mean... You'd... You'd think like the you know the the Zynga CEOs around their the friends' house talking about buying the the draw something company and they're like, oh, do you want to play some Pictionary? Nah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> that game's ancient. Who wants to play that for more than a week? So draw something. How much are we putting down? Billion dollars? Yeah, great. This will never get old. Uh, Verge reported one hundred and eighty. Okay, yeah, that that sounds about right. That sounds closer to what yeah. I remember. Yeah. Apparently eliminated all their profits. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Mark Pincus was voted worst CEO of the year by his employees? 
<laughs> today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, article All right. today. Yeah, he's actually voted the worst employee, I mean, the worst CEO of any company by his own employees. They hate his guts. He's, he, he, he's Zynga, right? Yeah, Zynga. Yeah, like, he eliminated all their profits, you know? Their savings, blah, everything just gone because of this shit. I thought he quit or, like, moved on. Oh, uh, nice. Ran away. Picked us still there. sold out and ran away. He's still there. I remember one of them selling out their shit, short selling their shares and running away. Oh, I really don't care about Zynga, but it's just like, I don't want to be like that hateful jerk, but say, oh, you get what you deserve, but no, they really are getting what they deserve. Their poor management practices mean that they're going to get poor business. They abuse their employees. Like, they're really bad about that. When we get up up to the 38 Studios thing, talk about it. Oh, yeah. I actually know people there, so we can talk about it. No, you know what? We'll skip over the next one, come back to that. 38 Studios. All right, so 38 Studios... I'll, I'll lay it out, you know, what happened. Yeah, it, you're good at back. All right, so, 38 Studios are making this game, Kingdoms of Amalur. Okay, and Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning is not really their game. It's, uh, it's by Big Huge Games. They made Rise of Nations and a few other games. But they're a subsidiary. They're a subsidiary, yeah. They're based in... Maryland. Mar- was it Maryland? Well, no, it was, it was Massachusetts. It was... It was uh, no, no, no. 38 Studios was Massachusetts, moved to Rhode Island. I'm talking about... Big uh, yeah, Big Huge Games is in Timonium or something. Timonium someplace. I thought it was Maryland. Yeah. Or at least it was before. Right, anyway, that's that's unnecessary. So um, they, they made that game. It was a good game. It sold actually pretty decently. Two million copies they sold. That was a, that was a lot. And EA was, was actually commissioning a, a sequel to that because they funded it. And they wanted another game because it was you know it did well. Anyway, the guys in uh, Rhode Island, 38 Studios, they were working on this MMO, Kingdoms of Amalur. They had a lot of stuff done, you know. It was basically, you know, 60, 60-80% done. And they were doing all of this stuff, and people were moving there. They were telling their employees, you know, we're, you move here, we'll pay for your house. And, it's, you know, that's normal stuff, and it was good. People were moving. Because they were getting government credit. Yeah, and they were getting credit from the uh, yeah. city of Rhode Island. The city of Rhode Island was bankrolling them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. City of Rhode Island? State, State of Rhode Island. Rhode Island. <laughs> bad. Might as well be a city. <gasps> it's so small. So That's two audience members. We'll never get back. <laughs> and yet, it doesn't have the lowest population. It doesn't have. Yeah, a lot of people there. You know, a lot of industry. So they they did this whole thing where they were getting money from the government and they were working on their game. Turns out that you know while that was happening, they were basically losing money because they didn't sell enough copies of Amalur. It had to sell like double what it sold for them to actually afford all of this. And so they couldn't afford one it. One of those ridiculous now. And all the while, they never told their employees anything. Their employees were led on to believe that everything was fine, everything was going to be okay because of mismanagement at the top. And people at 38 Studios, the executives, they, they dropped the ball on this, and all the employees hate them now because I actually know the employees, and they tell me how much they hate them. <laughs> so, yeah. they oh, the, And the guy in charge, uh, former... Red Sox player... Yeah. 38 was his number. I Kurt Schilling, yeah, is that? I, I Kurt Schilling, Thank yeah. You. Kurt Schilling. I never remember names. Kurt Schilling, and yep. he... Um, Sunk a lot of his own yep. money into it, so it wasn't... There was any shady... No, it wasn't... Just, he wasn't the shady one. It was the other top. people who were shady. It was the other people, the CEO and the, the, board, of mar- the board of directors. They're the shady ones. They made off well, you know? They made off well for themselves. Then they screwed everybody else because people didn't get paid... He lost all his money because of this shit. And so, yeah. They... Although, to be fair, 
an MMO in this age. Bad idea. The good idea was taking the setting and making traditional games yeah. off of it with a, a developer who already had half the system in place and just needed the fiction. Yeah, that's what they should have done. That you know, was, just made another Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, the sequel to it, or whole series of games. Instead, they were making this MMO, and MMOs cost a lot of money to make. You know, they cost the server costs are like ridiculous, and uh, you know you gotta negotiate publishing deals with people in China and Asia, and there's a lot of traveling, and it's like hundred thousand dollars. Just I, I understand he was aiming for the low end of the MMO, yeah. but still, if the old Republic is strug- was struggling, yep. I don't see how you were gonna do much better. Yeah. Especially if you don't have the infrastructure of a studio system that you had to build from the ground up. That was, that was another problem with Rhode Island is that they had to build all the infrastructure from the ground up. And so people didn't get paid. More uh, Lives were ruined. You know, people spent a lot of their, their savings just to move to Rhode Island. And now they find out that the company bankrupted can't really cover their house. So some of them were actually foreclosed on because of this. How bad is that? And they have big moving bills because the uh, Kurt Schilling said he was going to cover it, yeah. and he kept deferring until he could get an injection of cash. But he was not—he's not a salesman no. because I—I uh, want to know. I think it was—I uh, read a long feature piece. I want to say it might have been on what Polygon was or Pace, where he was interviewed, and he would describe and they described these meetings. Everyone took his meeting because he's Kurt Schilling. You take a meeting from yeah. him in that area. So he was getting meetings with every investor, but he and he thought I did very well. But he's not a good. He wasn't a businessman. He didn't know to read the signs that people were meeting him because he's Kurt Schilling, and that they weren't going to invest with him because they understood the shakiness of the proposition. People were expected to pick up the slack from uh, you know from the government because they had to pay back the government loan, and what happened was they didn't have any money to pay back the government loan, and nobody wants to finance a company that is basically in debt with a product that to isn't fair, guaranteed. He actually did have very good potential of getting the $15 million he needed, and then the governor came <laughs> out and ran his mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was another thing. And saying it was a failure. He says it only sold 2 to 3 million copies. That's a failure. What? That's news to me. Yeah, it's actually... Uh, it, it more than broke even, it had a profit. It was a good game. On itself. On itself, not yeah. For the whole two to three million copies? That's a lot. That's like, the, that used to be the best seller of the year blockbuster back in the day. Yeah. And even nowadays, that, that's got to make like the top 20 sure, sellers. yeah. Although that's a whole other issue about how many copies need to sell to make back their money, yeah. like Resident Evil 5 and Dead Space 3, the amount of copies they need to sell was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, the governor ran his mouth off because he's up for re-election. Yeah. I mean, you can't really blame him because he really was... He wasn't the one who made the deal. It was the previous well, governor. Pre- yeah, the and then he had to pick up the flak, down the slack for it, and, and, and uh, you know, I was just going to be really pissed off because he has, to, he has to answer to the citizens of Rhode Island. Where the hell did their money go? Well, that and when he, before he, he uh, before, when I think he was like a state senator before, uh, don't quote me on that, but he was against yeah, it. Yeah, he was against that it. He was, was vocal against it. Against, he was against it, but... So when he became governor, of course he's against it, and some people say he tried to subtly sabotage mm-hmm. it in the end. Because it's his predecessor's deal. Sure. Yeah. So, and the thing is, we don't... It's not a certain that he could have made... He could have actually 
they could have actually gotten out of it, but Rhode Island for certain is not getting their money back. Yeah, they're auctioning off assets of the game now, just like they auctioned off their furniture. If you wanted to pick up some really cheap furniture, you could go to Rhode Island and buy stuff. But not the Microsoft dev kits. Nope, not those. Oh, no, that's another issue. Microsoft actually... Did they, did they eventually sue, or they were just threatening that? It's threatening it. It, it just back. took it back. It back. just had to send it back, that's all. Yeah. I, no, well, I do remember there was... It took a while, because at first they didn't want yep. to, because they realized that was really valuable, and they could get their money back on that, but yeah. <laughs> Forgot about the dev kits. Next-gen dev kits, man. Of course. Well, current-gen dev kits. Yeah. Oh, so hold on. It was, it was, it was current-gen dev kits. So Microsoft actually wanted their Power Mac G5s from 2005 back? Okay, let's move on. Diablo's three servers fail on launch. Yeah, that's a horrible, horrible launch. You know, I stayed up 24 hours because, you know, we were doing a live stream video for charity, myself, Aaron Alexander, and uh, Dave Orshry. So, you know, we were doing this thing, and servers wouldn't come on. It was Error 37. It's always Error 37 for... Maybe 12, 16 hours was just off. You would think that, you know, game that everybody wants to play for a whole decade, that they would have more servers up on launch. Like, I would understand if it went down for 30 minutes, but no, it went down for like a whole day. People took days off from work to play Diablo 3, and we couldn't play because the servers were down. And this is a single-player game. A single-player game. It's, 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 so it's more than just... With multiplayer options. With multiplayer options. So it's more than just, you know, like if it's yeah. an MMO and it goes down on the launch day, nobody's going to make a fuss. Okay, people are going to make a fuss. It's not going to hit the news. It's just going to be one of those things, like Guild Wars 2 it'll be, it, launch, you know. It'll, it'll be shoved in between two other yep. things. Like, yep, it has. No, I'm happened, sorry. You know. this, this sounds completely privileged. <laughs> I have a hard time sympathizing with this. You took off days from work. It was down for a whole day. Uh, come on, guys. Let's have a little bit of perspective here. All right, perspective here. Perspective is that it's a single-player game. A it's a single-player game, and that's why people made a big deal, because it is always online DRM. Why would you take days off work to play a game? I'm still stuck at that. No, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could take days off of work for anything. Yeah. Anything. I can't even take days off the work to go to the fucking hospital. So screw your Diablo 3. Let's move on. Okay, fine. To be fair, I have played it, never wanted to. It's just it's a good game. It exploded. Yeah, it's a good game. Exploded for a whole week. Because after the th- era 37, like the next day, a new yeah, error number so I think Kirk Hamilton wrote like a whole series oh, he of was, he was happy. <laughs> he was happy. Oh, I my job is done for the week. I know what I'm writing yeah, about. Yeah, that was his whole, you know, his whole thing. You know, day after day, he would post a new error, a new screenshot, game crashing, this... Characters not appearing. <laughs> it was beautiful. Okay, moving on. The next thing, we're going to skip two months because pretty much everything that happened in there is going to be in the second half of this section of the podcast. Right. So we're skipping to, I think, uh, August. Steam Greenlight Confusion, which is in parts. One, we had no idea what it was, and two, they had to, quote-unquote, fix how they were running it, which caused a whole new set of issues. Okay, let's talk about Steam Greenlight. First of all, Steam Greenlight is a new service that Valve launched to support independent game developers as well as studios that were small and low profile and couldn't get Steam authorization. It was for people to have a chance to make it on Steam. Yeah. 
So the idea originally was that people could upvote or downvote a submission, and you had to have, I think, 10,000 people voting for it for a game to get greenlighted. And everybody complained about this because how do you get 10,000 votes? If you had that much popularity, you wouldn't need to be on Steam in the first place, right? So... Well, not Steam, but Greenlight, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, so that would... Which, that which actually happened later. Yeah. Regidai Games with Primordia, it's like, it says, okay, we published your last three games on Steam, mm-hmm. and they did pretty well, but this next one, can you put it through Steam Greenlight? <laughs> 30 minutes later, they were greenlit. Yeah. <laughs> they just tweeted, can you just greenlight this first, because they're making us jump through the hoop. Yeah. They were done within a day. Yeah. So Steam reduced the requirement. 10,000 is a bit too much. Now it's like just the top Yeah, and they removed the the downvote button because it was unfair. And it also added a fee, which caused another series of issues because $100 is not a small amount of money for an independent developer. I just want to clarify because if someone wasn't up on all of this, the fee went to charity. Valve did not collect that money. I'm not saying that I'm agreeing with the fee, but they weren't personally collecting that money. But it was a mitigation yes. saying that it was proof that this is just to stop the concept art stuff and the jokes and the people thinking they're going to get Half-Life 3 via this way. <laughs> right. So people did that. There were multiple issues of Halo and Half-Life 3 that people were trying to do yep. in life. Got 10,000 votes. Where you go, guys, to make it happen? Nope. They didn't. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh, Valve doesn't have moderators, right? They don't. They don't hire moderators, so they had to have someone who was actually on staff, you know, one of their programmers, actually deleting all these terrible, terrible entries from people in Bulgaria and Russia submitting games that were already on Steam or games that were like for the Xbox. And in those deletions, like some real mm. games yeah. that just were like little avant-garde that didn't look real yeah. were cut as yeah. well. They had to have something, and that's why they have the $100 fee. And I think it's reduced now to 50 Is it? Oh. It's, yeah, uh, it's recent. It's better, but I do know that there was, like, some businessman said, if you're an independent developer, talk to me and I'll pay the fee for mm-hmm. you. That's fair enough. And he did that with a number of ind- independent developers, at that I, especially the ones I think he worked for. I think that's how... Um, I don't want to mispronounce his name, but the guy who did the Sea Will Claim Everything, that's how... Uh, Johan Kiritz's, I believe, something like that. Yeah, Johan, I think that's how he got his fee mm. paid. He a generous man was willing to pay it for him. Generous man or he might have actually, pockets. Or I think he might have actually been grandfathered in because he got his thing up before the fee was instituted. Well, either way, they but, worked it out. There were some articles talking about whether Steam was the right place to do it. And you know what? Valve said, like, yeah, we're going to go indie. And interestingly enough, they have, in fact, gone indie. Like, they're one of the judges for uh, the IGDA. And every finalist in the Independent Game Awards will be automatically put on Steam. Well, to be fair, they were doing that already. It just wasn't official. Yeah, it just wasn't official. And some games managed to slip beneath the waves. It was unfortunate. Well, Minecraft, I think, just said Yeah, no. Minecraft didn't want to do that, so... I have a but, correction. The name is actually Jonas Karatsis. I just wanted okay. to get that in. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, I hate mispronouncing it. isn't he? I believe so. That's, a, that's a damn good try, anyway. The thing is, you can sort of discuss whether it was right or wrong on Valve and their plus or minuses to everything. The reaction 
to these people saying that there are issues, there's no pros mm. to it. A few years ago, with everyone on the internet being a winely entitled asshole. Then get enough features and enough people trying to get rid of that entitlement, and now those same people have switched 180 degrees, now attacking everything they see as whiny entitlement, <laughs> even when that entitlement is the entitlement fairly treated. Yeah. And that is what happened here. And it's the first time I've seen, like, a full cl- a classism discussion that happened on the air. I'm sure they happened, especially the first one that happened in the gaming arena. A, a lot of big players actually ended up weighing in on that. You had Jonathan Blow, I believe, did something that will probably go down in infamy, uh, like a lot of yeah, he actually. And then Bench Kuchera. Commented on Jonas Kurtz and Kurt. Please tell me how to pronounce your name if you ever... It's, 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 pronou- it's like spelled like Jonas, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Jonas. I'm not sure either. I'm sorry. We're, we're very sorry for mangling it. He commented, and he was on the stop being an entitled, if your game is worth anything, you should be able to afford $100. And I'm thinking, dude, that's only because you earned like $10 million yeah. from your one game, and you got an Xbox deal before you even had to prove yourself. No, the thing is, is Kurtzman became the lightning rod because he was the most vocal of it. It's because, well, the money he earns, it goes to food, it goes to rent, it goes to basic living and medical. That was a big thing. He had, like, a lot of medical things to cover this year. That's where any money at all that he earned went to. And it's like, as to get an even bigger audience that the Steam offers, what is it, 70% of the market? Even if not everyone... It's like Christina Love, who got her game on early this year, out of hook or luck, I don't know, Valve smiled on her. Her sales shot through the roof to the point that she now does it full Mm -hmm. time, and she's got a buffer for later on. But it's this whole systematic break between everyone in the gaming industry must be exactly like me. And yes, gaming is probably the most expensive entertainment hobby you can have outside of skydiving or Or opera. Dinosaur hunting? (laughs) Is that a hobby? Well, she's got, like, she got the money in can they? Uh, I think that's called paleontology. No, no I'm talking about <laughs> building a time machine, going back and hunting dinosaurs. Oh, I thought oh it like, you, you know, mean like, you know, 6,000 years ago when the Earth was created by God. That's right, yeah. Back when it was flat and you could just go from one corner to the other with a rifle and take out as many dinosaurs as you want. Mm. Somebody get this idea greenlit and it'll help them make a game. <laughs> I think called it Turok. Oh, yeah. Never mind. <laughs> That, that, sorry, that idea already exists and is crap, so change your mind. The first Turok wasn't that oh. bad. Wasn't Turok a Tomb Raider precursor? It was. Or am I getting my dates confused? No, it, it came out first. Tomb Raider was 96, so I don't remember when Turok I think it was around the same time. It was, was like, it was a N64 game, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. If it came out the same time, Tomb Raider was probably already right. in development. It came out at the same time. And the reason both of them were featured uh, featuring the same material, which is dinosaurs, was because Jurassic Park was kind of a big deal back then. Right. <laughs> we I need to bring that back. You know, Tokyo Jun- Jungle has dinosaurs in it. I wonder why that hasn't taken off. Yeah. Uh, because Tokyo Jungle, it's too weird for most people, and it's downloadable, which automatically means you're going to sell slightly yeah. less. It's unfortunate, because in Japan, it's too a pre-priced game. <laughs> Greenlight. So, yeah, classism... More argument bullshit, and so actually, no, I, I was about to say nobody changed his mind, but that's absolutely not true. Some people actually did change mm-hmm. his mind. Our friend Ben Kutera. Yeah. He did change his mind. Yeah. Interesting Although, because I respect his opinions. He's a very principled person. He always argues consistently. Like, you know what he's arguing about. You know what his position is. He doesn't 
change it because it's convenient or because he feels differently on a different day. He's actually very consistent in his arguments. I do not agree with him. I do not agree with him a lot of the time, but when I do, it is because he makes a good argument. And it was interesting to see him actually switch sides in that argument because he was given more information to, with which to weigh his argument upon. That's why I was part yeah, of that. He switched over. It was good. I got so frustrated. I, I was like good for the first half hour, but I got so frustrated with him and all the other people who were just piling yeah. on, especially with my own like lack of money situation at yeah. the time. I was pretty convinced I had just screwed any chance I had for for a career in this mm-hmm. industry. And then the next day, I see it's like, wow, this is a lot of what I said last night. Was he just putting us on and he wanted to know the counter arguments? <laughs> or did we actually change his mind? I think we mind? actually changed thought, his mind. I think, I think he, did, he was yeah. able to own I, up to that. And, you know, he's a pretty good guy. You know, he makes mistakes, but he also owns up to them. He's full of himself. Well, so are you. Well, so am I. Fair enough. <laughs> to be fair, when you reach that position, it's like there is a certain amount of egotism that's not only fine, but expected. Yeah. Okay. We got Kickstarters to talk yeah, about. We do. Penny Arcade kickstarts to remove ads on its Oh my god, where do I begin? Here's the thing. I, I was talking to Jen Frank about this, and the, here's her theory that there's no good or bad when it comes to some things. It, there is only tacky and not tacky. You know, like there's degrees of tackiness. And what Penny Arcade did was was not against the rules for Kickstarter, was not against the rules of anything. Yeah, Actually, what, it actually wasn't. wasn't. It wasn't. There was just people being full of shit and read it. No, it wasn't actually against the rules. They actually talked to... No, no, I, I checked the FAQs. It actually... What? To, to the technicality of the wording, it is against... It depends on who you talk to. It, oh, they, actually, they actually talked to Kickstarter about this before they started the Kickstarter, and Kickstarter said that you can actually do this. It's okay. And so what they did wasn't illegal. It was just tacky as fuck. It was a tacky, tacky Well, going against the rules of Kickstarter isn't, isn't illegal either, yeah. but if Kickstarter says, yeah, they can do it, it's just, well, now everyone is allowed to do that. You have to be consistent. It's just tacky as all. You know, it's just, it's just tacky as hell. Like, why would you do this? Like, it, okay, here's the thing. Anybody can start a Kickstarter. Unwinnable did the same thing later. Unwinnable did the same but thing later. But not Kickstarter. But they did it on their own yeah. site, and they made, and they made their goal. Yeah. So, yeah. And the thing is, Penny Arcade is not like, oh, we're too small. Yeah, exactly. It was, it, like, it was, it's one thing if Unwinnable does it, because they're a small site, and they only have articles. If readers want to pay for it, cool. You know, that's something they can do. But Penny Arcade is this huge juggernaut. They could probably run the thing themselves. It was, you know, it's a site that's going to exist regardless of whether people fund the Kickstarter, but they took the Kickstarter anyway because, hey, it's easy. You know, that's what they did, and that's why it's tacky as hell. It's a bit like making a video game even though you have the money to make it. If you want to make a game by yourself, it might take, say, six months to do it. And this is, you know, you working on your free time. It's going to get done. It's going to come out. That's it. But if you want to make a Kickstarter, you better have a good reason for it. Like, if it's going to come out anyway, don't start a Kickstarter. It's kind of tacky as hell. Like, why would you do that? It's going to come out anyway. The, it's against the spirit of Kickstarter, isn't it? It's about it's against giving, the spirit, yeah. giving people who don't have the ability to fund themselves, giving them an actual chance to do that. So it's this a is where, start, right? you know, yeah. yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a kickstart to kick up the pants of whatever you're working on. And so somewhere like yeah. Unwinnable, they may not be a big site, but they have the resources to do their own kind of charity drive. Therefore, they don't yeah. need Kickstarter. Whereas somebody like, I don't know, for example, Christine Love, 
that Kickstarter would be good for her because she wouldn't have that facility. Okay. She wouldn't have servers running and some kind of database backend to handle all that kind of stuff. Whereas Penny Arcade obviously Although, do. Christina Love, I think I'll, she might do Kickstarter in the future, but I don't know what's in it. But I know she's doing it for her current game because she has enough back resources to live off of her previous game. That was just the name of my head. She's using it in the spirit of Kickstarter, like for the game that she can afford to make it herself. She's not going to use Kickstarter, but for the one... Or even just adding features like a Deirdre Kiai. Yeah. She said, I'm going to make this game anyway, but to add the voice acting mm-hmm. in, she, well, she couldn't pick Starter because it's not in Canada, but she could be an international equivalent yep. of Go-Go. I, I can add voice acting and get real good music and some and even better artists to, to clean things up. And that's yeah. what she did. And she did it for new. Yeah, it's about, it's about using Kickstarter exactly. to achieve something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And that is what it's for. And that's why when Penny Arcade did it, I got really irritated by it. I was like, why are you guys doing this? You don't need it. Actually, let's expand this because a few other Kickstarters have brought up the same issue. Like uh, Peter Molyneux, all the technicalities are there. Yes, he's making a game that no publisher would ever dare publish, like the populist spiritual successor, except even more expanded. And yes, it's with it's in with the scope, and people understand, yes, this is Peter Molyneux, so he may be talking a little something, but you're still going to get something, and it's going to be interesting. But at the same time, this was in the follow-up of Curiosity. This is terrible. What's in the cube? A server error is inside the cube. <laughs> a server error is in my phone, on my iPad. Which, to be fair, he admitted before it ever launched was more of a social experiment than How it was. How many times will I try and log into a server? The answer's about three, actually. <laughs> that's, that's the limit of my patience. Then he had the cheek well, to ask for people to pay for some servers to fund the magic suit. Also, he didn't expect this to get much attention. At Somehow, the, unlike Diablo, even though he's kind of like the Nikola Tesla, Tesla of video gaming at this point, he should expect this. I'm not trying to hype up curiosity here. It's not going to be a big thing. All I'm saying is that whatever's inside the cube is going to change one person's life forever. Now, I'm not saying that's a big deal. You know, that's like, it's just like, in the grand scheme of things, only one person is going to have their reality fundamentally altered. But that, that one person is going to be good. But, but everybody, you know, don't, don't get excited. It's not, it's not a big deal. And then, and then you wonder why he needs a Kickstarter to fund his next game. You wonder why any publisher would fund it. Well, they funded three fables. True. It wasn't their money, though. It's Microsoft's. Yeah, Microsoft funded Three Fables. It doesn't even work at Lionhead anymore. That's Lionhead's money. Like I said, the Three Fables, the Fourth Fables won't be happening. But Peter Molyneux is legendary for over-promising and under-delivering, but he still gives something interesting. He He gives us something to talk about, you know, put in the gaming news, otherwise, who will we talk about? We can't talk about Peter Moore. He's, like, sitting behind a desk right now. He's not working on video games. The reason why Peter Molyneux left Lionhead and Microsoft because he didn't want to sit behind a desk and manage things. He wanted to be hands-on working on video games. Also, I'm not going to judge his personal finances, sure. but from what the British press, or at least their editorials have... The British gaming press, I should say, or at least their editorials have said, he's a millionaire. Sure. He could fund this populist thing on his own because he was only asking for a couple of hundred thousand yeah. And they've actually been calling it, and I think last week they said, are all the old men ruining Kickstarter? Yeah, no, that was uh, Rob Florence, right, who was getting into that. Yeah. It's just like, Peter Molyneux uh, is going to be uh, the death of this thing. Is that a Scottish accent? You no, real. No, that's just, I, I would not <laughs> do that to you. I would not do that to you with an actual Irishman in the audience. I would only uh, do that when I was only surrounded by my fellow Yanks. Just confuse Scottish and Irish. No, no I was, no. 
People, people do said, that all the time. I wouldn't. I, I would said I would only do that around my fellow ignorant Yanks. I would not do that around yeah. and, and Ian because he's basically a Yank. Just, <laughs> just don't don't hold on to your R's too long when you say Peter. No, that's the that's the trick. If you go Peter, or like oh oh oh, you're going Scottish. Sorry, my my Scottish alarm went off. <laughs> you know, R, I live, I lived R, there for six Marine, years. R that Marine that I did that interview with, he's actually Scottish. He was my best friend throughout high school, and I guess uh, I don't know. I imagine that I could do it if I tried, but I don't really want to. Let's do that in a different Skype uh, when it's not being recorded. Right. Scottish well, one, that Scottish is, one, one that is being recorded, but not this one. <laughs> my mom, one of my mom's or parents' friends, is her whole clan is from Scotland. She moved here. Yeah, I, I don't think I could do that accent, <laughs> having heard it. I can do it. I just choose not to. So it's a force yeah. only to be wielded for good. <laughs> Please don't. Mel Gibson was bad enough. Oh, yeah, well, obviously Mel Gibson can do a better accent than me, but uh, he's the only one. Well, that's what okay. he can do. Ooh-yah, ooh-yah, is that actually how you Ooh-yah. pronounce it? No, but it's how it's spelled. Ooh-yah. I thought it was Oya. Ooh-yah, second largest Kickstarter, period, 8.6 million raised. Good God. And it... Might see the light of day. Might not. It might have been a scam. It might be over promising. I don't think it's a scam. I think what the promise is doable. It's pretty expensive. I mean, they're using an A5 chip. That's also to the iPad. So no, I, I think it's pretty doable. Well, the processor, I believe, it's the graphics processor and the RAM. Thinking that people are going to be interested. It's also the A5. It's, like, a process, oh. it's a graphics processor and a CPU. Yeah, it's basically a Samsung Galaxy phone in a box. Yep, it is is a Samsung Galaxy phone in a box with a controller and Linux installed so that you can create your own video games on it and run stuff. So it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like having a jailbroken iPhone or something. Which is actually... No, but it's Android. The Samsung Galaxy is probably more apt. Sure, yeah. Either way, I think it's doable. I mean, without the overhead of all the stuff that goes inside the phone, it's enough to run something like what they're suggesting. It's going to be very small. If it can do what the iPad can, then you can at least get like something like Walking yeah, Dead on it. You shouldn't have any problem. You can play Infinity Blade on it, and that's a really beautiful looking game. So I don't know why you played it with a controller, given this controller. I'm, I'm going to be a big pessimist here and say I think it's a shit idea, and I think nobody's going to want to play games in that thing. Because I'll tell the, kind you of what, that, the kind of people I, that want to play games on it would just buy a Samsung yeah. Galaxy Player or an iPod Touch or an iPhone. But you know, you can buy an old iPhone without a contract and play old iPhone games on it. I don't see why anybody would be compelled to pay like $100 for something that's like a really bad quality Wii or a bad quality Xbox. I think what's going to happen is that it's going to come out and no big game developer is going to develop anything on it because of piracy. Well, the piracy is going to be rampant because it's embedded Linux, so it's it's built from the ground up to circumvent DRM and that kind of thing. So. It's also they also said it was open, so there'd be nothing in the way that they'd try to put it in. Either. So a lot of uh, you know big companies. Idea them. Correct. Haven't any of you read Little Brother by Cory Doctorow? Yeah. <laughs> we need, need to have open game development here, or we will surely be taken in by Homeland Security. I'm being, <laughs> I, I know that's hyperbole, but I seriously think that yeah. All right, I'm really pessimistic that. Oya or Ouya or however you choose to say it is probably not going to deliver on all of its promises, but I think that the idea is still one that we should hold forth as a valuable one. Yeah. That you know we should be supporting the idea of open development and open hardware and open fucking everything. 
But that you, can you, can, you can already get that. It's called the Raspberry Pi, and it's been out for several months. And it's, right. uh, it's a completely why, why? open piece of hardware developed by, of course, the guy who designed oh, the yeah, David Brabham. Um, it's yeah. yeah, and it's basically again smartphone hardware on a board. It runs its own embedded version of Ubuntu. Well, well, at least you can port Ubuntu to it. You know, it does the same thing. And, and oh yeah, it does. It doesn't have as good a name, or maybe it does. I quite like the Raspberry Pi pump. Anyway, anyway. But, it, but the other problem is that the, if you think the piracy on that's going to be bad, one platform that recently experienced piracy is Windows 8 because all the, all the yeah. Windows Store games can be really easily cracked because they're all written in XML and JavaScript. So people can, like, hack the in-app purchases so they cost nothing and things. So that's for... <laughs> and that's, and yeah, yeah. And that's for Microsoft wow. proprietary really, So imagine, yeah. how, imagine how bad that's going to be on a, an open-source console. There's difference between there's difference between open and open source. Open doesn't really mean anything. Open source means you can obviously edit everything. But yeah, I think that's it's why uh, big companies are not going to put their games on it because hey, open source, you know, can't protect our shit, our merchandise. Kind of a bad idea. Also, Steam's coming out with their big picture console. So. And Steam is a big picture in Linux well, as well, so you might not really need Ouya. What about oh, the, God, that's going to be what about the Steam console next year? Uh, I wonder. Because they're getting pretty very miffed at uh, Windows and Microsoft and their closing of the system that they said we might just shift over to Linux, period. Mm-hmm. And game developers feel the same way. I mean, there's no reason for anyone to stick to Windows and that's a free alternative. As long as people buy your stuff, why the fuck not, right? Well, that's the difference between Microsoft and, uh, and Apple, isn't it? It's like people buy Macs because they have money and want them. People buy Windows yep. computers because they need them. Yep, yep, because they're they limited cheap. And that's because all the programs are on there. If, like, everything just instantly shifted to Linux, I'd probably stick with Windows because I'm too lazy to change my OS. But, but if I have when I get my new laptop, whenever this thing finally becomes just untenable for the, whatever it needs to do, and I get a new one, and everything is shifted over to Linux enough proportion that I don't have to worry, I could conceivably do mm-hmm. that. I don't need to stick that's to Windows. New, that, that's Especially the only reason I have Windows on my, on my Mac is so that I can run games. There's no other same. compelling reason to use it. Same, same. I mean, that's why I have uh, Windows on my Mac right now. Also, I mean, I I'm not on Windows right now, I'm on my Mac, but yeah. And here's the interesting thing about developing games for Linux. When you're developing a game for Linux, it means you're developing a game for the Mac. It's the same architecture. Well, it is now. Well, it's well, the same not, architecture. Let's not, let's not go nuts. I mean... But on top of OpenGL, you've got all the different Apple frameworks. If you want to release it in the Mac App Store, you have to use all their sandboxing technology, and they've got core graphics and core audio. You're opening, you're opening uh, Pandora's box here. You're opening Alan's Mac Knowledge box. You don't want to, you don't want to go inside this box. I see, I see where you're coming from, but <laughs> we can do that. We, we can do that another time. Yeah, right. yeah. Can, let's, uh, move, let's on. move on. <laughs> okay. I wrote this one down. I wrote most of these when they happened throughout the year, so I wouldn't have to do this a lot of research. I don't remember what this okay, refers to. Okay, it was Jason Schreier's piece. Kotaku yes, it was Jason Schreier's piece. It was Jason Schreier's piece okay. on access to the industry. This. He was defending the industry or something about how when people... It was something to do with how you talk to the industry. It was about entitlement. Google it up. Google it up. I couldn't be bothered. Yeah. This, this thing just totally got axed. Oh, I found it. I found it. He was arguing about how a, a world without use games should not be so bad. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
maybe if they were cheaper, I'd agree, but... Yeah, no, yeah. it's just like, I listened to that, it's just like, well, yeah. Oh, I found it, actually, that was the wrong one. The no, game it's called, okay. uh, gaming's biggest problem is that nobody wants to talk, that's what it's called. Yeah, nobody wants to talk, that was gaming's biggest problem, because of how peop- how the media reports on video games. It's out of it date is very now. Bi- It is very that much out of date. So out of date, because within the ensuing months, Polygon, Penny Arcade Reports, Wall Street Journal, they're getting like all these in-depth in interviews, even, even uh, Kill Screen, with its present situation, managed to get... Like one or two. They got Far Cry 3's lead designer to talk, and today I, I I don't know who it was, but it was uh, Ken Levine and someone else, and some publication they were talking about. Ken Levine doesn't actually talk that much. I mean, if, before all of this stuff happened, but now it's like he's opening yeah. up about how Elizabeth was almost cut from the game, and how he and a pro Elizabeth team on Bioshock Infinite were like, you know, no, we got to have her in the game. Yeah, like four interviews with him came out on the yep. same day on four different. And it's not just him either. It's like, like Tim Schafer. David Gator is just publishing behind-the-scenes stories on yep. his Tumblr. What's the name of the guy who made Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle? Schafer. Ron Gilbert. Ron Gilbert. Yeah, Ron Gilbert did a huge interview the other day with the official PlayStation blog, and he talked about his influences that led to the cave being created. It was a very in-depth interview. Send me a link yeah, I will. There. I mean, it's a very, 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 very good interview. And, you know, all this stuff wasn't happening early in the year, you know. So, yeah, I guess this... I wonder, I doubt we can directly attribute it to Jason Schreer's mm-hmm. piece, but there, I guess the same thing that caused him to write it was, like, the same shift in, like, uh, consumer demand and just the general culture of how the Internet works. I guess they're realizing this is untenable. You can't keep this up anymore. Yeah, you've got to talk to people. There's a degree of silence. Because, like, silence is now almost equivalent mm-hmm. to bad press mm-hmm. in the social media world we live in. Okay, I'm going to assume this next one is related because Penny Arcade calls Kotaku out. <laughs> That's not really a big deal because then Kachera calls everybody out. Uh, although, I know that... You know what? Let's uh, let's link this to another sure. discussion that came up recently about how game press is probably going to be the best type of journalism you'll ever get because of the amount of policing <laughs> everyone does on it. <laughs> you gotta imagine that other industries do the same thing, right? No, not even close. Like movie industries, like like you could get you could even bribe the TV or movie reviewing industry, and no one would know, and no one. I think care. what's really amazing is that games journalism manages to stay crap. In, in spite of all this intrinsic scrutiny, yeah, yeah, that's well, not entirely. We're we're slowly digging our way out, but yeah, that's weird. I don't really yeah, have a pessimism here, but what's actually got better out of say this one Penny Arcade calling Kotaku out or whatever has has that actually changed anything, or was no. that just was that just a no, five minute spit on Twitter and then everybody forgot about it next week? Five minutes spit on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Like, it's so that, that yeah. isn't that kind of a problem? Which is actually what most it? of this is on this list here. No offense, Eric. No, not all of them. Some of them, some of them actually went on for weeks. Oh, I thought you, I thought you were going to say it went on for ten minutes. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a long, uh, that's a long that's like, time on Twitter. No, no, just for like Christopher, that was like two weeks. God, we must be uh, really bored over the holidays. Thirty eight studios was oh, almost a month. That was a good. That's how because, I mean, that's that's a lot that's of people I'm, whose lives are, like, very direly affected I'm, I'm by more, a few I'm people. More talking about, I mean more the infighting rather than, like, obviously the 30th Studios thing was a thing that was worth talking about. I'm talking about yeah. the, the kind of internal journalism spats, like, I'm sure we'll come on to it at some point, but the whole 
the existence of Polygon, and uh, to, even today was uh, when Brian Crescente let us into his house. A lot of <laughs> British game journals uh, mocked him. Um, and it's those kind of things that like they seem like a big deal at the time, but now I'm just kind of like, whoa, here's a little scandal. I'm going to put my phone down and go make a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, the thing is, just like maybe not directly, but things have gotten better. Probably not as a result of this, but just people wanting to do better. But Polygon, Penny Arcade Report, Kotaku's recent rise to prominence. Dorito Gate, are That's, we going to get there? Yeah, we should talk about that eventually. It's got to be, it's gotta be on here somewhere. It's down near the... I, I called it something else and then realized no one had a, any idea who these people or names are, so I, I put Dorito Gate. I mean, I know what in October. I think of it as the Rav Florence Affair, and I think that's a much better and nicer name oh. than just calling, you know, everything Dorito with Gate. Gate at the end. Yeah, seriously. Okay, you know what? Let's just skip down to it and we'll go back up the list before. But the thing is, I called it Jeff Keighley and the GMA Game Journalist. <laughs> made amazing. So, Jeff Keighley, staring the, into the oblivion and, of his soul. You know when a picture says a thousand <laughs> words? There's two from this year. One we haven't gotten to. The other one was that photo. <laughs> it's, it's just his utter misery. I, it was probably, he was probably in between expressions. <laughs> And that photo was just taken at the most inopportune time. But screen cap, dude. It's beautiful. Screen cap. He's answering it's a beautiful. question. Oh, yeah. it was? It's a screen cap. Oh, it was a screen cap. I thought like oh. someone was uh-huh. taking pictures while they were doing I think the question was, um, the, the question they asked him was, can you remember when you lost your passion for this work? <laughs> <laughs> it was that. I, I don't mean to laugh too hard. No, we, we're not, not oh, here to no. laugh at anyone else's misery, just, you know, they're... Their misaligned priority. Can I ask a question um, out of cultural ignorance? Because I don't know about everybody else from the UK and Europe, but I you know, I know of Jeff Kelly's existence, but is he actually considered to be a hard-hitting journalist? No. Uh, I actually didn't know what... He's one of the most well-known game journalists in existence because of game trailers. Because of well. Yeah, I, it, I didn't know he worked at game he, he wrote a number no, of books, like he wrote Half-Life, but the Half-Life to... book, about how okay. it was made. Yeah. So was it Raising the Bar or something? That one? That yeah, one? Raising the Bar, yeah, yeah. Oh. That's a funny one. The thing is, his name up until before this didn't never really popped up a lot, but it has popped up a lot since. He's a TV journalist. For in- TV journalist. Yeah, oh, okay, that, okay. that's why. If you watch uh, the videos, a lot of people have a lot of respect for him. Like He gets really in-depth in with the studios and stuff, and he writes uh, all these post-mortems about them. Just say his stuff just never comes across. Right? Yeah, you won't you won't see stuff with like our regular. He's not one of us. (laughs) Well, no, no, not not even like one of us. No, no. I see a lot of things that are not from one of us come across my desk. It's just like no one seems to ever like. Oh, here's a postmortem. It's or like randomly. We, here's here's an interesting thing that someone that I've never heard of somehow gets retweeted, and then I okay, I'll read this. It's just his stuff like never ever comes across, and that's weird. To kind of to kind of like dig into the heart of this quite quickly, I guess the problem is, well, whenever you see the, whether it's the original Jeff Cayley surrounded by Doritos and Mountain Dew picture, or the edited one where he's wearing a Dorito Pope-like hat, um, <laughs> I, think the, I think the problem is whenever you see that picture, it's impossible to distinguish it from advertising. And that's really what, yeah. the, that's really what the whole point of the Florence column was, 
was that whenever people the GMAs were posing next to Hitman posters, whenever Lauren Wainwright had Tomb Raider uh, splattered all over her Twitter, that those things, it was difficult to tell PR apart from journalism. And that's why I was asking, do people think Jeff Cayley's a serious journalist? Because a lot of the stuff I see that he does seems like I would describe as advertorial content. That's not necessarily a, a slight in him as a human being. It's just that I would assume he was doing that in association with Microsoft rather than doing it as an independent journalist. And I can see that, like, a lot of people, because we're the supposedly people who know, go out of our way to know these things, and I can see, like, the random person coming across this thinking might just skip over it, thinking, oh, it's the ad, that's the part of the screen I don't look at. Yeah. Right. Or question why the ad blocker isn't working. I wonder if it's the rise of ad blocker that the companies have to go to this... Yeah, it is. I mean, that actually, that happens an awful lot in TV now because, you know, with TiVo and all that stuff, it's just like a lot of companies are really pushing, like, product placement again. I mean, it never really went away, but now it's becoming a bigger thing because there are all these sort of, like, ad blocking and commercial skipping services out there. I just use Firefox, so I don't have to deal with it. I don't know about you guys. I'm just going to read up on this controversy Uh, using my brand new MacBook Pro with render display. Just give me a second. Oh, I I'm jealous. Critical Distance does not endorse any product or service. This this is brought to you by MSI GX660 laptop top range. This, uh, I'll, have you, I'll have you know really <laughs> this podcast is happening is because I'm, I'm full of Lemsip. I'm like full of, uh, of, of branded, of branded <laughs> painkiller and lemon drinks. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm drinking vintage seltzer for the Northeast right now to keep my voice undry and throaty. I'm drinking um, sangria milk coffee imported from Japan. And I am speaking to you on a Dynex. <laughs> okay, we're moving on. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting really good at derailing this thing. This is my first and last year in this podcast, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you're first kidding? Many. Like, I'm first of many. First of many. No, no, last year was hell. Last year was absolute hell. Seven people, thereabouts, was not a good As idea. we approach the 20% mark in this podcast. Oh, God, yeah, we actually got to move this on. Yep, so controversy can on. It was stupid, and I'm still going to laugh at that photo. Okay, Oliver North backed Call of Duty. He's even in the game. I know. It's pretty terrible. He's a war criminal. He's a war criminal, and that's all. What is this even about? Who is Oliver North? All right, back in the 1980s, uh, a bunch of people in the Reagan administration thought it would be a good idea to, I, I don't know if it was even about communism at this point, but I do know they wanted certain people in power in Nicaragua to maintain their banana interest because several people in the CIA own large stock in Chiquita. a banana company. Chiquita. Thank you. And they wanted to maintain their interests, and they also at the time wanted to overthrow the Shah of Iran. So they decided to sell guns to one and then use the money. They uh, bought guns from one and then gave them to someone else using the profits from those sales. And Oliver North was the guy who basically headed up this operation. It was illegal to the highest degree because Congress had passed several laws saying you could not do this in either country. They were not Noriega is what was happening. And you need a congressional approval for these types of ops, and they went behind their back. Additionally, they never told Reagan they were doing these, because if it ever came out, they didn't want Reagan negatively affected for, because of all of his domestic policies that might get damaged, which is where he got the nickname Teflon President. Uh, okay. But Oliver, the center of this, they were doing investigations. They were—he was basically going to go away for the rest of his life, and then he got pardoned by Reagan. Lucky, lucky him! Lucky him! Another so, place so called Judy. Obviously, exactly the kind of person you want endorsing your man shooter war game. 
and he's never ever repented for anything he's ever done. Still thinks it was. What's amusing is that the game actually goes in depth into the whole Noriega thing. It's a reason why a bad guy is a bad guy, and so on. I don't for telling it well. Yeah. So you know, it's the. Uh, it's in there, and it's very jingoistic. Like, it tries to justify why they did it's the right thing. It's kind of sickening, actually. I have a question. For, like, the older people who might want to get their man-shooter, if they actually saw Oliver North promoting Call of Duty, would that make you want to buy it if you oh. knew live? Oh, you would not. It's terrible. It's like having <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld shill a video game right now. You, would you want him in a video game, knowing that, no. you know, how he screwed up? Well, I mean, oh, Oliver North has a show on Fox. I mean, I think that if, yeah, got, well, if you gave it a few years distance and then, you know, Donald Rumsfeld had a show on Fox, we'd probably see the exact same thing. Because he already has a that, show on Fox. It's just not advertised. It's every program they have. But, um, Tish, you're talking about, no, you mean oh, Carl Rove. No, I don't know. Just anybody from that administration. George Bush will someday have his own show on Fox. Wait, he did for eight years. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I am going to have to cut this out because I do not want the hate mail. Wait, wait, are there dealers have, there have we ever gotten... Yeah, on Kotaku, yes, sadly. You would not believe if I had to ah, deal with. Leave them in. Leave it in. I know objectivists who leave will it go, in. To leave it in. go to this. Send point. them to me. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the uh, debate. Nah. Uh, oh, so yeah, all of in the game. So, this is just bad advertising on both ways, because if you're too young to know the Iron Contra, you have no idea who this guy is, and it won't sell it yeah. to you. And if you're old enough, you know who he is, and that's why it won't sell it yeah. to you. You're not going to buy it on the basis of this ad, so it was bad advertising, period. Congratulations. Next. Uh, Medal of Honor Warfighter teaming up with a weapons oh, manufacturer. Man. Oh man! I don't why. Why am I the one immediately associated with this? Is it just because of the porterhouse thing? No, because you're at the best at ranking. All right. So, Medal of Honor Warfighter decided it would be a really great idea if they had actual weapons that you could buy based on the ones that were available in the game. Apparently, no one that was involved in the PR of this thought this could at all be a bad idea. And the fact that we're even talking about this now, a couple of days. Is it even a couple of days after the Newtown shooting? Yeah, it's a couple of days. Just a couple of days after the Newtown shooting is kind of frightening. I think it just kind of put into sharp relief the sort of thing that a lot of people have actually been saying for a very long time. Wark said it you know, pretty eloquently with Gamer Theory, and that was years ago already. We know very well that the AAA game development is in bed with the military, and something like this... I believe that what this Medal of Honor warfighter thing, partnering with weapons manufacturers, does is is it draws into sharp relief something that we've known for a long time, and yet we find ourselves unwilling to talk about, which is that AAA game development is very much in bed with the military-industrial complex. And this is something that really deserves some sort of national, if not international, conversation that we are not having that you have these games that are, in the text of them, about very strange quasi-verisimilitude about these games that are then hawking as part of their brand these actual live weapons that you can kind of, like, take the game experience into the real world, and who on earth would ever think this was a good idea? I really don't know. The actual motto for the Warfighter weapons was authentic game, authentic brands. So you're not selling a car here. You're selling a freaking tomahawk. 
Don't ask me why there's a tomahawk in metal car. Anyway. car. But even if you were selling a car, you wouldn't be like, you've played Burnout, you've crashed your cars into every junction of time. Get the real Porsche. You wouldn't do that, would you? It's like it's zombie you. you, you, you here's way. the official zombie you toaster. You can electrocute somebody's face with it. No, no. It's just not, I it? want everyone to look at that link. The, the yes, Bushmaster. Right, so yeah, no, that is the gun that the killer, I will not name him, he used to kill 20 children and yeah. 7 women. And it says here, consider your man card reissued. Right. So we can have a pretty long conversation on the whole hyper-masculinization of violence and how, I mean, especially the military kind of like makes war and violence kind of like this integral part of the male identity to such an extent that this is, you know, what we see being perpetuated in movies, we see it perpetuated on TV, we see it perpetuated in games. And at one point, are we going to have a serious conversation about this that doesn't boil down to, well, we need to regulate the video games? And yeah. it's not even about that. It, mm. The thing is, is, if there was enough intellectual, uh, I don't know what the adverb ad, ad is, intellectuality behind the thinking while playing these games, that at least there would be, like, an understanding of what you're seeing instead of just passively accepting it. Mm-hmm. Like there is in movies and books, like we get torn apart. Awareness. Right. Yeah, that even that you know, with I mean, it, then I wouldn't have an issue with it. It's just the fact that no one you thinks about what's going on is the issue. It's not about changing the game; it's about thinking about it's them. Not, it's not really at it, no one. It's, it's the difference between games like okay, take the game like Spec Ops: The Line and mm-hmm. Far Cry Three. These are very self-aware games. They know they're about violence. They know they're about escapism. They know they're about, yeah, Hotline Miami. They know that they are about Generation Y. It's about how kids these days or adults these days are disillusioned with the lives that we live. And, you know, we play video games and we get a thrill out of it. We're thrill seekers. And killing a person, at least in a video game, is, you know, is just an expression of that disillusion that we have. And that's why, you know, some of us go to war. Like, like it's the reason why Spec Ops The Line is the way it is. It's so poignant. It's, as is Far Cry 3, it's very poignant in certain ways. Yeah, you can talk about all the various issues about colonialism, whatever. But this is one of the very poignant issues about Far Cry 3. It's about that. Whereas you take a game like Medal of Honor or Call of Duty, and these are very unaware games. These are basically advertisements for the lifestyle there are advertisements for the military, for the awesomeness of guns, and why you need to buy a gun. There's no, there's no self-questioning. There's no snark about the manliness of guns. Like, if you play Far Cry 3, there's actually a, a in-game encyclopedia, and it's all written by, by a very snarky writer. And you read it, and it's, you're basically making fun of everything. And it's that self-awareness that sets the game apart from something like Call of Duty, which... Unfortunately for all of us, Call of Duty sells tens of millions of copies, while Far Cry 3 might only sell, like, less than five or something. Uh, There was actually a pretty nice article that Jordan Rivas did that kind of boiled down to, you know, let's think of Call of Duty as kind of a Katy Perry song. (laughs) That I mean, this is kind of pop media. This is what is, you know, selling to the masses. And what is it about that that really catches on to the sort of populist mentality? And what he suggested in that article is that Call of Duty, in a certain way, sort of does acknowledge kind of like the badness and fear of what's going on. But it revels into 
I think he just kind of like tied it into the whole YOLO thing. And God, if only we had Ben Abraham in here to talk to us about YOLO some more. But, you know, the idea that this is some sort of like party escapism. And I am interested in articles, you know, that are talking about Far Cry as Far Cry as being like a, a conscious critique of that. And I'm definitely interested in how something like Spec Ops then goes and, you know, recapitulates the entire thing. But what I'm concerned about is that both of these kind of take place within the scope of AAA development themselves. And buying these games in turn kind of buys into the same industry that they're critiquing. Where there needs to be a bit of a more self-aware dialogue about this, apart from just playing a video game that makes you a little self-aware that you're playing a video game that celebrates war. We need to think a little bit more about what actually goes into the manufacture of these games. Where are these minerals that go into our devices, everything from our consoles to our smartphones? Where do they come from? What companies are backing this up? What governments are backing this up? Because this isn't really just a matter of games here. This is a matter of how we're allowing ourselves to participate in an industry that is objectively evil. Objectively? Yes. Yeah. I think, like, to to, to bring it back to this thing, to to bring it back to games, controversially, um, I was going to say... You wonder why I wanted you to start, Chris. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm just, like, reiterating the stuff that I wrote, but whatever. No, I wasn't, I wasn't disagreeing with you. I was just going to say, like, the problem I have with things like Far Cry Fruit 3 and Spec Ops The Line is that it's great that those games are making those critiques about violence and Far Cry is this encyclopedia written by a guy who's very self-aware. Spec Ops is kind of a, I guess, a very long musing on the futility of war. You could drag it into a book if you wanted. But part of the problem is that Joe Gamer or Jane Gamer might not necessarily read it in that level. And so even though there's this game called Far Cry, which is something to say about colonialism, there's still people who yeah. will play it from the point of view of shooting people in the face. And Spec Ops yeah. the Line can be about, you know, what should be good of war or a glorifying violence. And there's people that will play it in the context of shooting someone in the face. And so it's like, like you say, it's not enough that these games are being made that have this kind of subtext you can read into because you're still looking at it through that lens of a first-person shooter. So even if Call of Duty had... If, if you took Spec Ops the Line and put the entire plot and the entire point into Call of Duty, it wouldn't necessarily have more impact just because more people bought it or more people played it because it's about the way that they interact with the game and the way that they think upon it, not necessarily the fact that it exists. Yeah. And this... Actually, Sam Chris and Justin... Uh, what's his name? Because like, yeah, they are talking about this exactly like right now. They're talking about yeah, how how Far Cry Three the reactions on the internet was that people didn't get that the game was self-aware. Like I got it because I'm looking at the game through a very critical lens. I got it. I saw it immediately. But a lot of people didn't. A lot of people when they play it, they just play it as a mindless shooter. You know, it's just another shoot people in the face game. So what 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 you just said there, Ellen? It's I think, I think one of the things that hammered at home for me was that, I don't know if anybody read John Walker's kind of what's great and what's bad about Far Cry 3 post for rock, paper, shotgun. And so what he did was he said, the first post was what I love about Far Cry 3, and he started off by saying, I think there's a lot of problems with this game, there's problems in the way the natives, and I haven't played Far Cry 3, so this is, I'll take this with a massive shovel of salt, but... Um, it was things like, oh, it says a lot of things about the natives and this problem of a magical Negro with powers and things. But then what he said is, but I'm going to put all of that to the side and completely ignore it so I can talk about how you get to punch a shark in the mouth. Not <laughs> the problem is that, you know, or, or, you know, I'll get to fly a hang glider and shoot somebody with a rocket launcher because at the end of the day, it's just a game, isn't it? Shrug yeah. of the shoulders, let's go kill some dudes. That's the problem is even the people who are meant to be our best and brightest who are critiquing these things, 
still put the issues to one side because they still enjoy the mechanicity of the violence. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun, fun, fun game. I mean, like, I, I could very easily, well, I wouldn't take offense to it personally because I'm not easily offended, but the portrayal of the natives is like, it's, it's like a mishmash of different cultures. You know, like, they get a lot of things right. Like, there's Malays in the game. Like, the Citra is a Malay character. She speaks Malay. But then all the other natives who are the Ratyat, Ratyat is actually a Malay word for people or civilian or citizen. And all these other Ratyat are Polynesian, and they speak with New Zealandish accents. They speak with Kiwi accents, which is nothing at all like what a Malay sounds like. Like, Citra sounds completely different from, from all these other characters. And her brother, who is also Malay, I mean, he, he doesn't have a Malay name, Vas, Vas Montenegro, which is not a Malay name at all, but he is her brother, and he, I guess you could say he speaks with a Malay accent. Like, these two are the only Malays in the game, and DIA character even calls her Malay, so we know she is a Malay character, but all the others are, like, just natives, and they just put together, you know, in this mishmash of different cultures on the same island. It's kind of weird. It's like, okay, so they're all different. Yeah, no, I think that, too, just kind of, like, reflected a sort of a privilege on the part of the designers and just sort of, like, a sort of cultural ignorance of, like, oh, we'll just throw some native stuff in there. It doesn't matter. It's yeah. all the same, right? Yeah, it's inclusive yeah. up that, to a point, And that's, that's why, like, there was, like, some interview with the designer, the writer, on Kill Screen recently, and, like, I like reading interviews on Kill Screen because I think it's some of the best stuff that they're putting out recently. And mm-hmm. I'm going through and it's just, yeah, we kind of wanted the island to be a sort of never-never land. And you just kind of stop there and think yep. about it. It's just, like, this is a real oh. place that you're basing this off of. It's yeah. Not a never it's, never land. It's Malaysia. It's, I live here. I fucking live here. <laughs> it's just Wait, like if it's Malaysia, right, Peter Pan, calm down. there should be like should there be like at least one city. No, there's no cities. It's based on like uh, it's one of the Malay islands, you could say. Okay. Yeah, like there so are islands like this. Has... There are islands that like this. There are places like this, and there are pirates there, and they will shoot you. It does happen. These places do exist. Right. No, but it's just like, it's my same issue that I have with Spec Ops The Line, where it's just like, you're getting this foreign environment, and the foreignness is the point, because it's really about working out the issues of these white people. And now yeah. I know that, that Far Cry 3, I mean, the main protagonist, you said, and like, it's Boss, right? And yeah, he's supposed boss. to be Malay, but he's he doesn't look or sound Malay, you're saying? Yeah, it's like, he's just an other. That's what it is. Right. Like, he has, his name is Vas right. Montenegro, and his name isn't Malay, but the character is Malay, you know? Right. It's weird. And I mean, yeah, no, it's the same thing. Cool. Same thing with a lot of characters in Spec Ops: The Line. The same thing with a lot of characters in Apocalypse Now, where it's yep. just like you're just putting these characters in a foreign environment for them to work out their own issues. Yep. And I find that that is a problematic trope on its own. I mean, I think that even if you're saying that this is like a self-aware game where it's actually, you know, you know, addressing the idea of colonialism and these tropes are being done intentionally. Like Stu Hoverth had a really good article on Winnable about how, you know, it uses these racist tropes in a very self-aware way. I yeah. don't think that that entirely excuses it from the racism because you're still yeah. basically having a game where it's privileging one race as being the issue that we're like, oh, that that really, you know, has the something going in going on internally and everything else is just kind of a setting. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of like reference comedy. Except it's the same as Apocalypse Now, right? I mean, you, you notice right. at the end, they they have all these different people that are together. You have the Viet Cong, you have the, uh, the Laotians, and then you have the natives who live in these areas. And they're all uh, under... Yeah, the Cambodians, they're, they're all under... Kurt. Yeah, white dude, right? It's kind of weird, right? Like, why? why what, what? What's going Funny. on here? 
I mean, the book that it's based on, Heart of Darkness, is the same thing. It's, you know, it's a guy who goes to a foreign country, and it's just like, and yeah, and the racism in Joseph Conrad's day was even worse. So it's like, (laughs) you've got that, but then you've also got the angle of why are we perpetuating things that we know are problematic? Just because it's a good story. I don't think it's a good story is a good enough excuse. Yeah. But anyway, we've got... I think think all it does is highlight the trope by referencing it, that that's like reference humor. You miss the punchline, you miss the criticism part of it. Anyway... We've gone really off track. We've gone really far afield. Yeah, we've got to move on.